This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, when it comes to studying space, we have had a tendency to kind of look beyond our planet and bypass what's right there. The thing that we can actually see, and that's the moon. But that's changing. We're learning a lot more about the moon, like the fact that it may generate moonquakes and more. So why is that happening? What's going on? Well, Thomas Waters joins us now, a senior scientist in the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Are we getting, are we studying the moon, do you think, more often now, like this this object that we see so often? Well, I, I don't know that we're studying it more, but I think it's becoming, again, with with interest in in returning humans to the moon, it's, it's becoming more and more a focus. Um, I think we've had a, a pretty good stream of studies, and one of, the, one of the kind of really interesting aspects of this study is the fact that we're combining data that was collected 40 to 50 years ago uh, by the Apollo seismometers that were placed on the moon by the Apollo astronauts with data that's been collected much more recently by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is still, I'm happy to say, in orbit and functioning perfectly and taking terrific images of the surface. And that's sort of key to this whole this whole story was the fact that there are these, now we know, thousands of young alt scarps on the moon that had pretty much gone undetected until we got into orbit with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And we also had, from the Apollo era, these moonquakes that had been recorded by the seismometers, but we weren't sure what their source was. And so combining the two, we now have established that the source of these particularly shallow moonquakes are likely these very young fault scarps that are indicating the moon is contracting. Really? So what is a fault scarp? Okay, yeah, it's a great question. I should define that. (laughs) So a fault scarp is literally just this cliff-like feature that uh, occurs when crustal materials are getting pushed together and literally break and are thrust up over uh, an adjoining part. So you end up with, again, what looks like almost a stair step in the topography. If you were on the ground or on the lunar surface and looking at this thing, you'd look across the horizon and see this sort of like wall in front of you, which which is, again, this fault scarp just being caused by the, again, crustal materials getting pushed up. Okay, so then how is this impacting like the surface of the moon? So what it does is it creates this, again, these these thousands now we know of small uh, stair steps in the topography, and, and it indicates that the moon has, con- you know, this population of faults indicates the moon has contracted, not a huge amount, but has contracted um by probably the radius change of the moon or the diameter of the moon, let's do radius change first, has changed by no more than 100 meters over the last tens of millions of years. Um, and so that's, that's okay. So in diameter, we're talking about 200 uh, meters, less than 200 meters um, or so. So it's not a huge amount of contraction, but it's right. still significant. So if you were on the surface of the moon, would this be noticeable? 
Oh yes, oh yes, and one of the 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 the, the most famous of these scarps that we actually first detected. Again, the story almost starts with Apollo because we first had an idea of the existence of these young scarps from uh, these very high resolution photographs that were taken during the Apollo missions. And one of those is actually one of these fault scarps is very near the Apollo 17 landing site. And Schmidt and Cernan actually took their rover and decided to drive up over this fault scarp, and they literally lost traction trying to get up it because the slope was, the slopes can get to, to 20 degrees or, or better. And so they had to stop and then start to zigzag in order to get up over this scarp. So, yeah, there's actually been humans have actually sort of reconnoitered of one of these young scarps that, that now, again, numbers in the thousands. So what is the value that in going back to the men, like with those crews, what questions would you have that want to get answered? Well, it, there's a really fundamental science question that, that emerges from, from, from this, which is how does a body the size of the moon remain hot uh, in its interior? Because that's the primary force that's creating this global contraction is the moon's interior is still hot. And, and so as it cools, you know, the interior volume shrinks. And then, again, the crust has to adjust to that. So you end up, again, with this network of, of fault scarps. So the real question is, how does the moon, uh, you know, one of the smallest silicate bodies that we have in the, in the solar system, maintain its interior heat for 4.5 billion years uh, and it sort of flies in the face of the conventional wisdom that, that uh, the smaller the, the rocky body, the more quickly it loses its interior heat and then becomes geologically inactive. And the moon just hasn't followed that path at all. Huh. So what role does the so, Earth play, if any, in all of this? Like, do we... Does well, yeah, the, and, and that's a great question, because the Earth does, and turns out, plays a, a, an important role in in the fact that you know we we know of the tidal effect that the moon has on the earth in in the rising and lowering of the tides but many people don't realize that the earth is having a, a similar effect or the same effect on the moon except it's a solid body tide not uh you know there aren't any no bodies of water on the moon that yeah. that are responding to these tidal forces but the crust of the moon does it actually gets flexed not by a huge amount, but enough to to induce forces that combine with these global contracting forces to help create these young thrust fault scarps. So the moon is actually, or the Earth in a, in a real sense, is is still having a very definite impact on the moon. What's so fascinating is, as well as you said, is so much of this information was from these Apollo missions back in what, the early 1970s? That's yeah. The Apollo, the, the first Apollo mission was was essentially it was 50 years ago. I mean, our our first landing on the moon, so with Apollo 11. But yeah, the Apollo seismometers were returning data from 1969 to 1977. So again, just an extremely valuable data set yeah. that that uh, you know that has now again been combined with a modern uh, uh, data set to tell us something 
we didn't really know about the moon. So did we not know originally, like when that data, when we were getting that data in the 1970s, did we not know until we could combine it with this new information what was actually happening? That's correct. Yeah, we we really couldn't connect what those moonquakes were being caused by until we had this these image the images from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter that showed us that oh gee we have all these active you know now we know to be active um, faults on the, on the moon so we again were able to make the connection between a shallow moonquake and an actual uh, now resolved and detected uh, fault scarp. So and the other part of this too is that there's kind of a there's kind of a practical side to this uh, I wanted to mention, which is the fact that you know we do have ambitious plans to return to the moon, and we now know that we have thousands of very young, potentially active faults on the moon, and that's something we have to be mindful of when when we're thinking about long term establishing long term outposts on the moon. How soon are we going back? What are the plans? Well, I think uh, the, 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 the U.S. has a, a very ambitious plan now for NASA to return humans to the moon by 2024. And um, we'll see if, if that, is, that can be accomplished. It's a, it's a, a real challenge. Uh, and, of course, we'll take a great deal of uh, uh, funding to, to make happen. But I think we're, even if it doesn't happen in that time frame, I think it, it's going to happen. There's a lot of international interest in, in the moon now and, and making, you know, not just visiting the moon, but actually going there and making a, a long-term presence. Well, it is fascinating. Uh, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. That's Thomas Waters, Senior Scientist in the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., a place that I have always wanted to go. I've always wanted to check out the Smithsonian and all the different museums that they have there. Uh, Listen, if you want more science news, we have that for you, too. You can check out the Super Awesome Science Show with Jason Tetro. Hey, Jason, what's on the show this week? Well, Simi, this week we're going to be focusing on bees. They're a necessary part of our agriculture due to pollination, and quite honestly, many of the foods that we enjoy would not be around without them. We're going to explore how humans can help bees by giving them a home in the city, and how planting certain flowers may help them avoid infection. And we're also going to learn about the current research that's going on and how you can learn more about getting into beekeeping. All right, that thanks, Jason. That's the Super Awesome Science Show. You can check it out wherever you get your favorite podcasts.